Warning, Seriously Strange covers topics that may frighten or disturb you. Viewer discretion is advised. When you think of farm fresh and locally sourced meats, it brings to mind images of the highest quality meals. However, in the case of the Picton Farms, the local source was the shady streets of the downtown east side of Vancouver, and the meats were that of the women that Robert Picton found there. Tonight, we will discuss the crimes of Robert Willie Picton, as well as how the staunch denial of police allowed the pig farm killer to hunt freely for over a decade and become one of the most prolific killers in Canadian history. Let's open the serial killer file. In March of 1997, Willie Picton was on the prowl, in a deep desire for sex. He drove into Vancouver in search of a companion for the evening and found Wendy Lynn Eistatter, a prostitute with a history of drug abuse. Willie had a proposition for her, a typical one, money for sex back at his farm, and she agreed to accompany Willie back. Things went as one would expect, after their business had concluded, Wendy asked to use the phone to call her then-boyfriend. While she was looking up the number in a phone book, Willie came up behind her and slapped a handcuff onto her wrist. Wendy immediately panicked. This was far from normal. A feeling of dread washed over her as she launched into survival mode, knowing that her life was in immediate danger. She kicked and bit anything to keep Willie at bay and backed into the kitchen. She grabbed a large butcher's knife she had seen on the table and began slashing out at her attacker. They fought over the knife, each getting stabbed in the process. Picton bled profusely from a wound, so much so that he fainted from blood loss, which gave Wendy enough time to run from the trailer. Willie had stabbed Wendy multiple times, however. One particular stab went so deep that it punctured her lung, and she had been cut open to the point that she was partially disemboweled. Despite all of this, Wendy's strength and fear drove her to keep going, and she ran into the street and waved down a passing vehicle. The car stopped, and the concerned couple believed Wendy's story despite her still clinging to the bloody knife. An ambulance was called and brought her to the hospital. Wendy was admitted to the Royal Columbian Hospital. Picton managed to regain consciousness and, despite his own wounds, drove himself to the same hospital later that night. An orderly found a key in Willie's pocket 
and found that it fit the handcuff that had still been locked on Wendy's left wrist. This should have been the key that put an end to Picton's dark desires. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police investigated, and Picton was charged with four offenses, including attempted murder. Luck, however, was on Willie's side. Wendy was too terrified to face him in court, and prosecutors considered a conviction was unlikely because she was a drug user and therefore unreliable. At the trial, Wendy did not show, and the charges against Picton were not pursued. Perhaps if the case had gone to trial, many lives would have been spared, because the clothes and rubber boots Willie was wearing that night, which had been taken by police, languished in a storage locker for seven years. The DNA of two missing women was settled on these items. The police had no idea the grave error they had made when they let the monster that was Robert Picton go free. Robert William Picton was the second of three children born to Leonard and Helen Louise Picton on October 24, 1949. Leonard was considered lazy and unambitious by most who knew him, and as such Louise was the more stern and hands-on of the two parents. Life on the farm was hard for the Picton children. They worked with the livestock for 12 hours a day, five days a week, only going to school for two days out of the week. The living conditions were appalling, and so was their hygiene. Louise would allow the animals free run, even letting them within the house, caring very little for the mess they would leave behind. The state of the farm was so bad that when Willie's older sister Linda was 12, she moved away to be raised by extended family and cut off contact with her parents and siblings. Due to their lack of hygiene, the Pictons had an odor that became infamous among the children's classmates, and Willie was bullied terribly for it, often being called Piggy by his peers. Friendless, Willie spent much of his time in isolation. Even on the farm, he preferred to spend time with the animals. One of the more disturbing rumors that circulated, however, around Willie's childhood was that he would open up the carcasses of large slaughtered hogs and climb inside of them to hide among the blood and meat. He felt safer in there than out amongst people. When he was about 12 years old, Willie spent some of his money at an auction to buy himself a baby calf. He immediately felt connected to his pet and intended to keep it for its entire life, raising it with love and compassion. However, things were going to take a dark turn. One day when he came home from school, he found his calf missing from its pen. He searched frantically for his beloved pet. Upon seeing his son distressed, his father, Leonard, told him to check the barn. Young Willie sped down to the barn only to open the doors to see his calf lifeless hanging by the ankle and already hollowed out, prepared for butchering. Willie was inconsolable, refused to talk to anyone for four days, and Leonard only made matters worse by suggesting that Willie might feel better if he ate some of his pet. When remarking on the incident later in life, Picton said, That really upset me, but that happens. 
That's life. I mean, we're only here for so long. When your time is over, your time is over. The harsh cruelty that his parents showed him by butchering his pet instilled in Willie from a young age that caring for anything deeply had painful consequences. Never the brightest of students picked and dropped out of school at 15 and at the urging of his mother began to shadow a local butcher. Having since moved to a large 40-acre farm in Port Coquitlam, about an hour outside of Vancouver, the Pictons began raising pigs almost exclusively, and it became Willie's job to slaughter them, prepare the meat, and store it for sale in large freezers on the farm. No one had any idea just how twisted Willie's mind had become, and how disturbing he would become in just a few short years. On the evening of October 16, 1967, Willie's younger brother Dave took the family pickup out for a drive. He was only 16 and was enjoying the newly found freedom having a license brought him. At some point during the joyride, Dave came across one of the neighborhood boys, 14-year-old Tim Barrett. No one can say exactly how it happened, but Dave slammed right into the young boy. In a panic, Dave raced home and told his parents what had happened. Louise Picton stopped what she was doing and hurried over to the place where the accident had occurred. When she found the boy, he was badly injured, but still alive. She looked him over and then began to roll and shove him into the ditch that ran alongside the road. Louise then pushed him over the edge and went home. Tim Barrett died by drowning in the water that had pooled within the ditch. After hearing about the hit and run, a local mechanic tipped off police. He remembered some suspicious damage to the front of the Picton's pickup that Dave had been insistent on fixing. Dave was sent to juvenile court and charged with fleeing the scene of an accident, but Louise never faced any charges for her role in the crime. She treated Tim more like a wounded pig than a human being. This utter disregard for human life was a powerful lesson that would go on to greatly affect her sons. In 1978, Leonard Picton passed away at the age of 82, and soon after, Louise was diagnosed with cancer. Willie took care of his ailing mother, feeding and cleaning up after her, but on April 1st of 1979, she died at the age of 67. Willie was grief-stricken. His mother was his role model, and he once remarked that the two of them were two peas in a pod. After the death of their parents, the Picton brothers began to make some large changes. Dave became associated with the Hells Angels and opened a chop shop on the farm, leaving Willie to run the day-to-day -day tasks associated with running the farm itself. The extended periods alone gave Willie the time to indulge in some of his darker pursuits. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. 
Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Women began going missing in the downtown east side as early as the 1980s, some investigators correlating this with the death of Picton's mother. However, officially, the first missing woman linked to Picton wasn't until 1995. Willie was a regular visitor to the dark streets of Vancouver. Addiction and mental illness is rampant among the low-income residents of the downtown east side, leaving many to turn to prostitution as a means to support themselves. Having no traditional vices like drugs or alcohol, prostitutes were exactly what brought Picton into Vancouver. It's uncertain when Willie began to see sex workers, though some investigators estimate it could have been as early as 1975, as he was shy, introverted, and with his notorious lack of hygiene, Willie never had much luck with women. He did, however, cultivate a reputation among the sex workers as being an odd but respectful man, despite the fact that women who went home with Willie often were not seen again. Dave hosted large parties on the farm, and Willie's awkward demeanor notwithstanding, he was always in attendance. The Hells Angels kept a steady supply of alcohol and drugs flowing to the parties, which also brought a stream of at-risk individuals right to the Picton's doorstep. Diana Melnick was one of the earliest alleged victims connected to the Picton case, She was only 20 years old when she was last seen in December of 1995. Friends of the young woman had described her as warm and kind. One remarked on how she loved horses. In the months leading up to her disappearance, Melnick had been charged with four charges related to prostitution, though due to her history as a sex worker, little to no action was taken when she was reported missing. Diana was not alone in this injustice. For years, the cases of missing women were ignored by the Vancouver police, considered to be throwaways. Women in the low-income neighborhood were often referred to as drug-addicted prostitutes, even when there was no evidence of either. They maintained that these women led high-risk lifestyles and were likely on extended drug binges or had moved in search of new clients. In 1992, the Women's Memorial March was established when the murdered remains of a woman were found in the downtown east side. The event is held annually to protest the high numbers of missing and murdered women in the community. Unfortunately, this did not spur the police to action, and the number of missing women continued to increase. In the spring of 1999, an informant told the Vancouver police that a single mother and drug addict named Lynn Ellingson had seen a woman's body hanging in Picton's slaughterhouse. When questioned by police, Ellingson initially denied the story, but the denial was anything but truthful. At the time, Lynn had been living and working on the farm when Picton asked her to help him pick up a working girl. It didn't take long before they came across a woman with dark hair and high cheekbones and brought her back with them. 
While Picton stayed in one room with the woman, Ellingson went to another to get high. Sometime later, Lynn woke up and noticed a light on in the barn. She walked towards the building, curious as to who would be in the slaughterhouse so late at night. She pushed open the door, and there, hanging on a meat hook, was the body of the woman they had picked up earlier that night. At eye level was the woman's legs. Lynn could not tear her eyes away from the painted red toenails. The corpse had no face, and on a table was blood and hair, black hair. Willie suddenly grabbed Lynn by the arm, pulling her behind the door. He walked her over to the table and made her look. He kept repeating, she was a pig, so I butchered her like a pig. Lynn was terrified, sure with every fiber of her being that she was next to be hung on a meat hook, skinned and butchered like one of Willie's pigs. The man's bloodlust was insatiable. His upbringing and trauma in life had put a filter over his eyes where he saw human beings merely as livestock to be slaughtered at his discretion. And he wasn't done yet, not by a long shot. And Lynn, with her heart pounding in her chest, preparing to have a hook stuck in her as well, had no idea just how deep the darkness went and how much blood Picton really had on his hands. She was a pig, so I butchered her like a pig. These are the words of the blood-soaked killer caught in the act of skinning and dismembering a woman. He was given many names. Pighead Killer, Porkchop Rob, the Pig Farm Killer. No matter the name, Heinous doesn't begin to describe the depth of the crimes perpetrated by Robert Willie Picton. His hunting along the streets of Vancouver left a mark so deep it still echoes today. And yet it was a lack of action and abysmal failure on the part of law enforcement of Vancouver and of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that allowed the pig farm killer free reign of the streets to hunt with abandon among the vulnerable women who worked and lived in the downtown east side. Tonight, we will discuss the eventual capture of Robert Picton and the full scope of his horrific actions. Lynn Ellingson found herself face to face with the mutilated corpse of a woman hanging on a meat hook, a woman whom, only hours earlier, had been very much alive and talking to her. Willie Picton was covered in the butchered woman's blood. The deranged Picton grabbed hold of Lynn and he made her look at the ruined body dangling above the ground. What he told her was that if she said anything, she would be right there on that hook, too. Panicked, Lynn blurted out that she wanted money for drugs and alcohol and that if she had that, she wouldn't tell anyone. Perhaps Willie had formed some sort of attachment during Lynn's time as his roommate. Perhaps his bloodlust had simply been sated for the night. Whatever the reason, Picton let Lynn go. He even went so far as to pay for her cab back to Vancouver. Lynn kept Picton's secret even when an informant tipped off police after hearing the story and they brought her in for an interview. She denied everything that happened that night. 
Like many of the women who dwelled in the dark streets of Vancouver, she distrusted police and she likely felt guilt and responsibility in helping to lure a woman to her death. It would take over three years before Lynn Ellingson would recount what she saw to the authorities. Even though the painted red toes of Willie's victim would never be far from her mind, little did she know just what horrors were unfolding at Picton's farm, and just how lucky she was to escape in one piece. Marnie Lee Frey's selflessness is something she was well known for. She would give anything she had to someone in need, even if that left her with nothing. Marnie's father, Rick Frey, was never certain what she would be wearing when she came through the door after a long day of school. Her father is quoted as saying, you would ask her where her jacket was and she would say, oh, my friend didn't have one, so I gave her mine. That was just the kind of girl she was. Unfortunately, Marnie was exposed to drugs through a gang, and her addiction pulled her away from the quiet life she had in Campbell River, and brought her to the streets of Vancouver, where she would support her drug habit by working in the sex trade. Despite her addiction, Marnie would call home sometimes as much as eight times a day to check in on her young daughter, Brittany. Her last call came in the fall of 1997, when Marnie spoke to her stepmother to talk about her birthday and make arrangements to pick up the care package that they were sending her. The call ended with the two exchanging I love yous, but Marnie would never call back again. It would be the streets of the downtown east side where she would become one of the women who ran into Robert Picton perhaps treating him with the same sort of compassion she showed all things and people, a compassion that Picton had no intention of returning. He butchered her to the point that her body was viciously destroyed. She was dismembered and her meat was ground up the same way Picton did with his pigs, only a partial jawbone would later be discovered on the farm, the last remnants of a caring woman. Even with what he did to her body, Picton could not destroy the love of Marnie's family. When her stepmother tried to report Marnie missing, she was told to call back in a few days. She called the police in October and November, but a missing persons file was not opened until December, over three months since she had last been seen. The Vancouver police refused to accept her disappearance as a missing person simply because Marnie had been active in the sex trade. Blatant police failures triggered by systemic bias against the poor, vulnerable women of Vancouver's downtown east side allowed a serial killer to evade arrest, and his monstrous lust would not be quenched by simply extinguishing the light of Marnie Lee Frey. He was far, far from finished. Lust was something which Picton knew all too well. Outside of his visits to the drug-strewn streets of Vancouver, Robert and his brother Dave opened a bar that they chose to name Piggy's Palace, though calling it a bar was being generous. 
The long tin shed was a place of near constant parties for Robert and Dave Picton, as well as the bikers they had become associated with. It had been constructed as a non-profit society dedicated to raising money for sports organizations and other worthy groups. This was not often the case, as the drug and alcohol-fueled events would devolve into orgies with many sex workers in attendance. However, they weren't the only ones who came to these parties, as Piggy's Palace was visited by almost everyone in Port Coquitlam. Business owners and city council members would frequent the bar, and there were even more average events like the Halloween Bash where kids came in costume, a surface of innocence that did not deter the activities that took place at the bar, the same as any other night. The one fixture that remained constant at these functions was a whole pig roasted on a spit. One attendee to such an event remarked about Picton's odd eating habits, saying, I was about to eat the pig, but when I saw him tearing it apart with his hands, I decided not to. His hands were dirty. This was a smart move, as it would later be revealed that one of Picton's preferred methods of body disposal was to feed the remains of murdered women to his pigs. A large portion of Port Coquitlam would later be horrified to learn that they had feasted on pigs that had consumed human corpses. Picton was a disorganized killer, as sloppy with his murders as he was while eating. He never truly hid what he was doing, even going so far as to tell one acquaintance by the name of Andrew Bellwood how to best deal with a hooker. Willie mimed handcuffing a woman and stroking her hair before reaching under the mattress to pull out a cord and proceeding to act out how he would strangle his victim. Another man named Scott Chubb, formerly employed by the Picton family as a truck driver, would later testify that Willie had told him a good way to kill a female heroin addict was to inject her with windshield washer fluid. A friend of Picton's named Lisa Yelds would clean his trailer for him. She grew suspicious upon finding many women's belongings among his things, but as a cop-hating biker, she only shared those suspicions with her stepbrother. Yelds once relayed how she'd seen bloody clothing inside Picton's trailer, and pieces of identification for as many as ten women. Her stepbrother passed on the information to police, however, they needed to hear it directly from Lisa in order to get a search warrant. Lisa's stepbrother called back multiple times in 1999, but law enforcement, retaining their record of negligence, never got in contact with him again. Further confirmation of the presence of women's clothing was brought up in the interview with Lynn Ellingson, who would call Picton a weird guy and recounted how he would dress in women's clothing. Occasionally, Picton even had help getting his victims to come all the way out to Port Coquitlam. He often had female acquaintances like Dinah Taylor, who go into women's shelters and talk them into coming back with her by promising drugs or money. 
When Willie had been injured during his attempted murder of Wendy Eistetter, Dave Picton paid for these women to bring prostitutes to the farm for his brother to sleep with. No one gave it much mind when these women never came to visit again. Even though all of this was well known, it would still take law enforcement until 2002 before looking into the murderous pig farmer. The near-intentional ignorance of Vancouver police left many members of the public frustrated. Despite newspaper articles, protests, and families filing report after report, law enforcement continued to rebuff the idea that these women were missing at all. Complaints fell on deaf ears as politicians commented that the decrease of these sex workers meant less criminal activity in the downtown east side. Even the most vocal among these vulnerable women were not safe from Picton's sick desire to kill. Serena Abbotsway had been a well-known face among the streets of Vancouver for years. She participated in the Women's Memorial March, as well as countless other protests. Shortly after being brutally attacked by a John, she still made an appearance at one of these demonstrations to speak out. While there, she had been interviewed by a reporter about if she was afraid of participating in the sex trade. I don't like the way the guy is, and I won't go with him. Perhaps her confidence in her ability to take care of herself was her downfall, as only a few weeks later, Serena would be counted among the missing. While the police seemed to blatantly disregard the crisis occurring in their own city, the illegal activities happening on the Picton farm were known to some extent to officials. Even politicians and law enforcement had frequented parties hosted at Piggy's Palace. So in February of 2002, when Scott Chubb informed the RCMP that he had personally seen illegal guns in Picton's trailer home, it got the attention that the missing women could never garner. It was a rookie RCMP officer, untainted by politics and negligence that had plagued police until this point, who would make the startling discovery of what really became of Vancouver's vanishing sex workers, an asthma inhaler. On February 5th, officers raided the pig farm. In addition to several illegal and unregistered guns, they found other compelling items on the property. The rookie saw the inhaler with Serena Abbotsway's name on it and recognized her as one of the women reported missing. As well, blood evidence of another woman, Mona Wilson, was found soaked into a mattress in Willie's trailer. It was clear that there were more sinister things to be found than just illegal firearms. Police would now be unable to ignore what was really going on at Willie's farm. Picton was arrested on weapons charges but was released on bail. He was kept under surveillance and forbidden from returning to the farm while a second warrant was issued and police began a thorough search of the premises. Officers scoured every inch of the Picton farm looking for evidence of the missing women and they found it. Bones and teeth were found buried all over the property. A bucket was found in a workshop freezer holding the partial remains of Andrea Josbury. 
Some women's skulls were cut in half for burial, their hands and feet stuffed inside the bisected skulls. Marnie Frey's jawbone was found buried right beside the barn, and the hand bones of Georgina Pappen were found in the pig pen. Aside from the remains, investigators also found a loaded 22 revolver with a large spiky black sex toy over the barrel, which contained both Willie and one of the victim's DNA. In a videotaped recording played during his trial, Picton claimed to have attached the sex toy to his weapon as a makeshift suppressor. Also found were boxes of 357 Magnum ammunition, night vision goggles, two pairs of faux fur-lined handcuffs, a syringe with three milliliters of blue liquid inside, and Spanish Fly, a dangerous aphrodisiac. Among the contents of a garbage can found in Picton's slaughterhouse were some remains of Mona Wilson. This was clear evidence of Willie's opinion of the women he had murdered. Officials were so shocked at what had been uncovered that excavations continued through November 2003. Police took special care in cataloging all of the evidence, not going to trial until three years after the initial raid. More than a decade after his crimes had begun, the dark deeds of Robert Picton had been dragged into the light. The full depth of Willie's depravity became clear while the investigation was underway. Allegedly, Willie liked to grind up some of the meat of his victims and mix it with pork. He would then sell the meat to unsuspecting people, give it out to friends, as well as serve it to the patrons at Piggy's Palace. The remains of one of his victims, Marnie Lee Frey, was said to have been served at a party hosted on the Picton Farm. A party which two of Marnie's cousins had attended themselves. The horrifying information was made public that Robert Picton liked to dispose of the remains of his victims by feeding them to his pigs. Pigs are omnivores and opportunists, so it is not uncommon for them to eat carrion and small animals. British Columbia's Provincial Health Office issued a statement confirming that some of the meat produced for consumption by the Picton farm had been contaminated with human remains. The method of disposal and destruction of the bodies made it extremely difficult to say just how many women died on the farm. When it was all said and done, and after years of continued investigation, Robert Picton was charged with the deaths of a total of 27 women. The trial began on January 30th, 2006, and Willie pled not guilty to all counts. On March 2nd, one of the 27 counts was rejected due to a lack of evidence. For procedural reasons, the judge hearing the case decided to split the charges into two separate trials. He felt that attempting all 26 counts at once would put an unreasonable burden on the jury and increase the possibility for a mistrial. It was finally time for Picton to answer for the crimes that he had committed. While Picton was being held in jail, he shared a cell with an undercover RCMP officer he believed to be another detainee. 
In the course of their conversation, Picton said he had murdered a total of 49 women. He freely talked about how a rendering plant is the perfect way to dispose of a body. It seemed that Picton reveled in being able to share all that he had done. Despite the overwhelming amount of evidence, Picton was only tried and found guilty of six counts of murder. In even further insult, he was only convicted of second-degree murder, the jury not being convinced that he had forethought in committing his crimes. However, after hearing 18 victim impact statements, the judge chose to sentence Picton to life with no possibility of parole for 25 years, the maximum punishment for second-degree murder and equal to the sentence which would have been imposed for a first-degree murder conviction, as well as the longest sentence available under Canadian law. Many families of the victims of the other 20 women would be crushed when prosecutors decided not to pursue charges for the other murders. A spokesman for the prosecution reasoned by stating that, quote, The branch has taken into account the fact that any additional convictions could not result in an increase to the sentence that Mr. Picton has already received. This statement meant very little to the loved ones of these victims. Even though other individuals such as Dave Picton, Dinah Taylor, and a farmhand named Pat Casanova were all implicated in Willie's crimes, charges were not pursued against them either. The case ended with a whimper. With numerous other women who lost their lives at the hands of Robert Picton and potentially a few others, not seeing justice, and they likely never will. In 2016, Willie was able to smuggle out a manuscript with the help of another inmate. It was an autobiography titled Picton, in his own words. The book sold briefly on Amazon for $14.95. In it, Picton claimed his innocence, accusing the RCMP of making him the fall guy for the deaths. Some reports say he went into detail in his writing about how the body parts of women found on his farm were in cars he had bought at a police auction and claimed that blood from one victim police found on a mattress was just spilled wallpaper glue. Picton insinuates that the Hell's Angels was behind some of the killings. Due to public outrage, the book was pulled and none of his claims were ever investigated. Failure to investigate may as well be 
the summary of Robert Picton's story. In the end, the sordid tale of the pig farm killer is left with a bitter taste. How many still missing met their fate on the Picton farm? How many murdered women will not have their killer face any consequences for what he has done? How many could have been saved if more attention had been given to the victims and to the witnesses who were just written off due to their involvement in the sex trade? Perhaps most importantly of all, was anyone else involved helping Willie in committing these atrocities who have remained free to continue to feed their deadly bloodlust. As law enforcement seems content on burying this case as Picton buried his victims, it's possible that we will never know, and justice will remain elusive to those who deserve it most. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.